Welcome to a Radio 191 FM podcast. Earlier in August, 190 states met at the United Nations headquarters in New York as part of the Quinquennial Nuclear, Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty Conference. These conferences are a key event for disarmament, as it provides a chance for all states involved to have their say and strike arrangements for nuclear powers to relinquish their weapons. Historically, the conferences have had varied successes, and this year's conference was no exception. In the conference, some Western states urged for condemnation for Russia's illegal war in Ukraine, while Russia refused to admit it had done anything wrong. In the end, Russian delegates would not agree to terms set out at the conference, and as these forums work by consensus, any steps towards disarmament were foiled. This breakdown in cooperation comes at a delicate time. Russian President Vladimir Putin is continually threatening nuclear war if any Western states get involved in the Ukrainian conflict. North Korea continues to test nuclear weapons as displays of power. Meanwhile, China is expanding and refining its nuclear arsenal, and the U.S. sits at DEFCON Level 3, the same level it was following the attacks on September the 11th. Given all this interstate tension, is there any hope for disarmament? I spoke with disarmament expert Dr. Anna Hood from Waipapa Taumataro, who served as the delegate at this year's Nuclear Non-Proliferation Conference, about the challenges facing disarmament. Have a listen. Russian President Vladimir Putin has been raising the threat of nuclear war over the past few months. How serious do you think his threats are, and how have they affected the global threat level of nuclear war? The threats have undoubtedly created a lot of anxiety and instability internationally. But in terms of how credible they are and how likely it is that we're going to see a nuclear attack from Putin, my sense is at this stage it's probably not very likely. And I think we can see that for a number of reasons. If we have a look at the context around the times when he has made the threats, we can see that really what he's doing is trying to posture and create the impression of strength as opposed to that he's actually going to use nuclear weapons. So the first time that he threatened to use nuclear weapons was right back at the beginning of the conflict with Ukraine. And at that stage, it was really unclear whether the West and NATO were going to enter the conflict and put boots on the ground. And so we can read Putin's threat then as sort of a a warning to the West to stay out and that if they stayed out, they wouldn't need to worry about nuclear weapons. The second time we saw significant threats coming from Putin was in September when Ukraine had uh, regained a lot of ground and a lot of territory and Russia was looking to be in a weaker position. And so when he threatened then, I think it was again an attempt to show strength and also potentially to send a message to the West that idea Clearly, he would like them to. He would like the West to force Ukraine to the negotiating table. Ideally, get some sort of agreement that would lock in the land gains Russia ha- did have at that stage before they lost any more territory. So, contextually, I think we can understand the threats as more posturing than real. I think the other factor to take into account when we're looking at these threats is, in many respects, it wouldn't work well for Putin to actually use a nuclear weapon in Ukraine. It's likely he would use a tactical nuclear weapon, and it's questionable how much impact that would have on the conflict and how much help it would be. Uh, And further, I think if he did use it, he would 
get a huge amount of backlash from the entire international community. The West would, or NATO would probably um, respond maybe with conventional weapons, but really strongly. And then other countries like China, who's really been trying to stay out of this, would probably be forced to take a position that was against Russia too, and that would put Putin in a very weak space. So my sense is that while they know it's not good and there is a lot of instability, it's unlikely he's going to use them at this point. You were part of the delegation for the 2022 Non-Proliferation Treaty Review Conference at the United Nations. How would you characterize the outcome for this year's uh, Non-Proliferation Treaty Review Conference? Uh, in one week, in one word, it failed. Um, but to give a little bit more context to that, so the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty is the key fundamental treaty we have in the world for governing nuclear weapons. And in particular, it works to try and prevent the spread of nuclear weapons and to get the world to work towards nuclear disarmament. And it was set up back in 1968. And since then, every five years, all the states that have signed up to it, which is 190 states, get together every five years basically to assess where they're at with achieving the treaty's goals and to try and map out and get agreements on how to go forward. What we saw this year when all the states got together in New York to negotiate for four weeks and try and come up with an agreement to prevent proliferation and work towards disarmament was that actually most states were on board for trying to get an agreement. And by the last day of the conference, we had all by one state prepared to sign a really big, long agreement. It was 36 pages. But at the 11th hour, the Russians walked in and said no deal and weren't prepared to sign. So it all fell over and we didn't get anywhere, which is really disappointing and concerning, given we're at a point where, although Putin may not be about to use nuclear weapons right now, there are many, many, many issues and concerns around nuclear weapons. And we're really at a point where we do need to see significant action on nuclear disarmament. Were you expecting the Russians to just, you know, say no and strike the bell? Getting agreement on nuclear issues is always difficult and there's always a chance that negotiations could fall over because numerous countries object. So we were very alive to the fact that it, you know, something could go wrong. And yes, it was always possible it may have been the Russians. It was possible it could have been other countries. We were hopeful in the final stages that we would get over the line because there had been a lot of goodwill. Um, but I guess given, we probably shouldn't have been, uh, it's not unexpected given that um, currently the global situation and the war in Ukraine is creating an added layer of tension in this sort of space. Historically speaking, how successful have these conferences been for, you know, nuclear disarmament? They have failed as many times as they succeeded, basically. And even when they've succeeded and we've managed to get an agreement that charts the way forward for nuclear disarmament and puts down certain measures, those measures have tended to be fairly small, fairly weak, and it has been really difficult to get states to implement them and um, actually have them come to fruition. So, the treaty, as I said before, was created back in 1968, so 54 years ago. No one at that stage envisaged that we would still be trying to get nuclear disarmament um, in 2022. Everybody, when they created the treaty, thought that it would take a few years, maybe a decade at most, but the, the fact that we are still here more than five decades later, still trying to get progress, I think, shows that the regime is, is in real trouble. It's not it's not healthy. The United Nations has been criticised by many due to its structural veto system, whereby any permanent five-member state can just veto a resolution. Has this interfered with disarmament in the past? And do you think there are more successful avenues for nuclear disarmament, such as 
interstate treaties? I definitely don't think we should be looking to the UN Security Council to solve disarmament issues. As you say, there are five states that control a lot of what happens on the council, and those five states all have nuclear weapons. And outside of those five, there are then only 10 other states at any one time. So it's a really small body of 15 countries. And disarmament is an issue that affects every country in the world. And nuclear disarmament affects every country in the world. Although we don't all have nuclear weapons, if a nuclear weapon were to be used, it would affect people's lives across the course of the world. And so I think in that respect, it's really important that all countries can be at the table. And so it means the Security Council isn't the right place. And it is big multilateral forums where all countries can come together to make a treaty that are more appropriate. And while we haven't had much luck recently in the nuclear space, there are many other disarmament treaties that have been uh, negotiated in multilateral forums. So we've got biological weapons and chemical weapons, landmines, cluster munitions, just to name a few, by bringing all the countries in the world together and having negotiations. So my hope would be that that's where we're heading on the nuclear front. Politics Professor Robert Patman, who works here at Te Whare Waringa o Otako, believes that states are becoming less cooperative and more compartmentalised on global issues. Would you say that this is a particularly relevant challenge for achieving uh, nuclear non-proliferation? So this is so interesting to think about in the context of disarmament. I, I completely agree. There's a lot of um, division in the international community at the moment and a lot of difficulty with getting states to agree. But ironically, for disarmament, that may not be a bad thing. And the reason I say that is if you look back over the history of nuclear disarmament, the time in history when we had the most amount of cooperation amongst states and the most number of treaties being developed in the nuclear sphere was actually at the height of the Cold War. So that's when obviously we had major different power blocks, lots of tension, lots of disagreement, and yet it was really productive for international treaties around nuclear issues. In the last few decades, when the United States has been the global hegemon, we've had very little multilateral collaboration on nuclear issues. And I think one of the reasons that's been the case is that when you have one country, such as the US, being in the position of the global hegemon, they don't have to negotiate or compromise or um, give up anything. They can just dictate what they want and pretty much get away with it. Whereas when you're in a um, the Cold War type situation, we've got multiple power blocks. Actually, everybody has to give up a little bit um, to make progress. And so, ironically, it can be easier to negotiate multilateral treaties and to make some progress. So in terms of where we're at now, we're sort of coming to the tail end of this period where the US has been the dominant player internationally. And we're entering into a phase where power is much more diffuse. There are way more different, uh, there are significant numbers of countries that have a reasonable amount of power. And it's unclear what that means. Some people are calling it a new Cold War. And if it is, maybe those dynamics mean that we will actually have the capacity to create more treaties as we did in the Cold War era. Or maybe it'll look a bit different and actually it will. there will be other difficulties that emerge. I think it's too soon to tell, but it's a really interesting time. Um, I think the next but five years or so will be very telling and um, a really interesting time to be engaged in this space. Thanks for listening to a Radio 191 FM podcast. There are heaps more at r1.co.nz.